0: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition
1: of the Systematic Investor Series with Robert Carver and Moritz Sieben and I, Niels Karstblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your rules-based investing journey. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue and listen to past episodes that you may have missed. Like the recent episode we did with best-selling author of The Market Wizard's book, Jack Swager, a must-listen episode in my humble opinion. Now, as you know, the aim of the podcast is to democratize the hedge fund, CTA or quant world as whatever you prefer to call it. And if you want to be part of this journey, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can share these episodes, if you can rate and review them in iTunes, we greatly appreciate it. That is kind of the payback you can give us for putting in the time and dedication each week to the podcast. And as long as that continues to happen so that we can see that you're getting value from them, we will, of course, continue to do them. And it's not so much whether or not you have a big following and therefore whether or not your share matters or not. It doesn't really matter at all. In fact, even if you have a small following, because if you share it on your feed or on your page, it tells Facebook, Twitter, Google, iTunes or YouTube that this is something that might interest other people based on the number of people sharing it. So this is how that it lets us know that the topic that we're discussing and the content that we delivered was worth your time. And so, with that said, Rob Mortz, great to be back with you this week. How are you doing where you are today? Hey, Niels. Hey, Rob. Doing fine. Good.
2: Yeah, it's been a few weeks. Quite an exciting few weeks. Quite a lot's happened
1: since I was last on at the, the beginning of October, I think it was. Absolutely. Can't wait to dig into that. Before we do... Let me give you um, kind of a quick market wrap, which is today not going to be a market wrap whatsoever, just something that I stumbled across. I think most of the people listening to our conversations each week, they know I'm not a great fan of the mainstream financial media as a source of sound financial advice. But now and then, you do hear something that really makes sense like this quote from Jeremy Grantham on a recent appearance of his on CNBC and in it he said the only reality that you can never change is that higher priced assets will produce a lower return than a lower priced asset you can't have your cake and eat it you can enjoy it now or you can enjoy it steadily in the distant future but not both. And the price we pay for having this market go higher and higher is a lower 10-year return from the peak. And I think if you were to look at a super long-term chart of the return of a kind of a classic 60-40 portfolio, even if you go back to the, the 1920s, and of course we had the big peak in 2000, the tech bubble, expected returns really have never been lower than they are today. So I think that the challenge that most investors are experiencing at the moment is that on one hand, they are worried about these extremes will come to an end. A sudden one, most likely. On the other hand, they are fearful of missing out of these markets as they continue to rise. So we're all looking for some kind of safety net and tail risk hedges, but ideally some that don't cost anything. But as our listeners will know, I don't believe that it is necessary to predict the market conditions and when they will change. You only have to respond to them when they do. And of course, this is precisely what we do through our systematic trend following and volatility trading strategies. So that was a slightly different market wrap because I'm sure we're going to get into some of the market actions when we run through our portfolios. So uh, since you have been out for a few weeks, um, Rob, and as you said, a lot of things have happened since, why don't you uh, kick it off? Tell us what you've noticed, what's happening in your portfolio as we stand.
2: Yeah, it's interesting actually. And this is often the case with, um, you know, with sort of systematic CTL style strategy. An awful lot can be happening in the world, but will not necessarily be represented in the return so actually for the last since it came came on last which is about I don't know five or six weeks ago I'm actually a little bit up like up 35 basis points and um in terms of the returns it's kind of a nice even spread so really the financials lost money so I lost money in equities bonds and then against that made money in um, in oil and gas and FX so kind of an interesting spread there it's also useful, I think, to give you the figures for the last week or so, because of what you guys are going to have similar, so we've got similar lookbacks, if you like, for comparison. And actually, the last seven days has been pretty good. I'm up 2.6% uh, over the last week. And the, the, the main profitable market there was was actually natural gas, but also platinum and pork belly. So, um, you know, a, a kind of, not really, again, sort of financial. So the, the mainstream financial media is obviously very focused on what's happening in the particular in equities where obviously we've had the vaccine news a couple of weeks ago now there was a very sharp rally in equities you know everyone was focused on that of course and you know I have a long-only portfolio that did extremely well and actually that day was a small down for my futures portfolio but you know it wasn't it wasn't like the you know there was like a massive up and a massive down there was a small down and that's nice to see isn't it so you've you've really got that diversification coming in when the long-only portfolio is doing well the thing that's sort of a bit of a hedge if you like and you know, not explicitly, be implicitly has got a small loss. That means hopefully that when the long only portfolio does less well, you know you you get the the balancing effect the other way. So um, so there've yeah, been quite a lot of ups and downs, but actually the you know the, the systematic portfolio is just kind of just on a fairly even keel, up about ten percent since the start of the year now, and really not a, a year of great drama to be honest. Compared to my long only equities, which obviously has been like a like an exciting roller coaster.
1: Yeah, that's pretty good, I would say. Yeah. What about you, Moritz? How was your week? Good week for the trend following program.
3: I think uh, the best week in um, quite a few months. To be honest, uh, I didn't didn't actually count it, but from what I can recollect, I I didn't have a week that was better than one point six percent, which is my performance last week in in quite some time. So, um, quite happy about it. And most of the money, I think, was made on on the long positions, as is uh, normally the case. Uh, still long the grains, so soybeans, soybean meal, bean oil, all of that has worked really well. Wheat and corn too. Long iron ore. This one is just um, very steady, very steady to the top side, and and producing kind of like uh, gains like clockwork from a long positioning. Biggest gain from being long Bitcoin, no surprise there. That thing is uh, on, a, on a ride. And, uh, and not that many losing markets. I mean, um, you know, a bunch of losing positions, but they were all relatively tiny. Maybe gold lost a bit of money. Maybe I've lost a little bit of money in some of the bond markets, but nothing really, maybe, maybe a bit in the energies, but nothing really too exciting. So um, pretty good week for me.
1: Yeah. No, cool. Great. I mean, on our side, our trend following strategy also had a pretty solid week. Interestingly enough, with all the sectors, and and that is a change doing well. It was led by bonds, currencies, grains, as you mentioned as well. Best market for us, just uh, I think like you, uh, Rob, net uh, gas, pretty solid, despite actually some of the other energy markets uh, detracting a little bit from the performance. We've obviously seen the COVID-19 vaccine news, which has had some some effect in terms of uh, reducing quote-unquote uncertainty in in some of the uh, markets, the US uh, equity markets specifically. And that meant that the VIX uh, remained low, at least in in recent history. It is above 22 for for the week, so it is above its long-term mean, but uh, at least it's coming down a bit. Normalizing... Our volatility strategy actually also had a pretty solid week from those developments, not even a single losing day, which is unusual for these type of strategies. So uh, yeah, all in all, pretty good as we head into the Thanksgiving week, I guess. Now, we do have some questions in from Mervyn and from Daniel and Antonio. But Rob, you also provided some really cool topics that we can talk about. So why don't you kick off, Rob, with something that you found interesting. In the meantime, I'm going to pull up the questions we had from our listeners that we will also uh, get into today.
2: Yeah, it relates actually to the... Was it Jeremy Grantham you quoted earlier? It was. Yeah, it relates to that quote actually, because obviously the strategy of buying things when they're low in price rather than high in prices you know commonly known as value and um, although everyone was focused on the kind of overall movement of the equity market when the vaccine came out what was really interesting was that on that day there was an absolutely astonishing dispersion between stocks which have kind of got value characteristics and ones which have momentum characteristics and um, you know all kinds of people came out and do what they normally do which is at these times which is say things like you know oh it was a a 10 sigma or a 16 sigma event so you know just to kind of underscore how massive it was and those numbers are a, a bit meaningless of course because it, it's a, a bit silly to you know to, to measure things in standard deviations for something that's obviously got a huge a kind of fat tail distribution but i would say definitely it was a little bit bigger than the last similar event which was in 2007 and was called the, at the time the quant quake which was a couple of days again when these different factors just moved in massive opposite directions without much effect on on the overall market. I think um, it's in- interesting as a single data point, but also potentially interesting as, as a reversal of a, of a trend, which is the fact that value has been underperforming kind of momentum or growth stocks for for a very long time now. And um, I've got a piece on my screen from from JP Morgan, who did some more detailed analysis on this. And they looked at the, the PE spread on the S&P 500 between Value and um, the, the market overall, and just just before that that shock a couple of weeks ago, now that was at ten. So in other words, I don't know what the average PE on the S and P five hundred is, but suppose it's say twenty five. That means the value stocks were trading at fifteen, you know, which is a huge difference. And just to give you a feel for for how how much of a difference that is, if you go back to a nineteen ninety nine, which obviously was the, the peak of the tech bubble, that measure then reached a a peak of um, just under eight so we were even more overvalued in terms of or undervalued if you like in value versus the market just before that that vaccine came came out than we were back in you know the heady crazy days of of 1999. So the the big question on everyone's lips I suppose is will this be the beginning of the the comeback of value um, that I'm sure lots of journalists there are, are waiting to pick up their pens and write about that because that's the kind of thing they love writing about that this particular strategy is is dead or this particular strategy is doing well particularly if you can they can kind of link it to the quantum systematic world because they, they do seem to enjoy beating um you know quant managers over the head when they're doing badly less so when they're doing well i think but uh, yeah i was just just curious about what you guys thought about that because for me that was quite an interesting event because i I teach um a course on systematic trading at, at a university in London and I always pull up the slide of 2007 and say look at this crazy thing that happened in 2007 and these guys are all like 22 years old and they're like well you know what I was like 8 years old and playing with lego back then but now I can pull up my new slide saying look look what happened in in you know in November last year it's very recent so it, it is a it's kind of a I i'd call it a historic kind of at least once in a decade event but uh, yeah, just wondering what you guys thought about that and also about the prospects for value going forward, maybe.
1: Moritz, do you want to dive in first? No, you dive in first. <laughs> okay. Well, I was just going to say, given COVID, they might be back playing with Lego now. Uh, you know, you <laughs> never know. But um, no, I mean, I think what you're saying, you know, I don't know much about value and all of that, you know, good stuff, but... But I do observe some of the things you say if I just look at our own backyard, meaning trend following. I mean clearly trend following if you look at the strategy and you can compare it to other things, people will say, Oh yeah, but the spread between the performance of say a trend following index and and another strategy index is is at a you know historical high, meaning that trend following has quote unquote underperformed for a long period of time. So there is no doubt that trading strategies or investment strategies go go in and out of fashion. Without a doubt. We know that. Which is of course why we preach diversification generally speaking. And I think that proves the point. Value, of course, is something that I guess became very well known because of French and Farmer and Nobel prices and all of that good stuff. And so so it's a big thing. And I think a lot of money has followed that strategy and a lot of money is is hurting at the moment unfortunately we can't say exactly the same about trend following because that not that many not that many investors uh, are, you know are into trend following on a global scheme so to speak but the problem is always timing and i think the the quote i was talking about in the beginning about even though we get to these extremes right and let's just say value again you know we're at an extreme and so on and so forth the question is do we need to worry about always anticipating when that it's going to turn or are we going to apply our normal discipline kind of systematic framework and say, we don't need to worry about it because the data will show us, right? And we may get a few false starts. We we know that. And I think it's it's the same with everything we do. You look at your individual markets and you see how many trades can go in a row without producing a... Any profit you might have three or four losing trades in a row, even in the same market. But then suddenly you get that big move up, and the only way I know of to uh, kind of uh, deal with that is through diversification. And the same would go for 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 the on a strategy level, which is kind of interesting. And I and this might go in a completely di- different direction. And I'd love to hear both of your views on this because a lot of our listeners, I think, are interested in trading models and and how we develop them and all of that stuff. And and so and and a lot of the people we talked about and a lot of the literature swears to this kind of walk forward methodology, right? You can't use too much of ensemble data, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that I've been thinking of recently is that why not instead develop and you know test all sorts of parameter combinations and just look for, for for parameter combinations that okay okay on one hand they need to be profitable and and maybe there are some minimum requirements for that return stream but then why not look for just return streams that are uncorrelated and combine them that's what we do in our portfolios why not just do that why wouldn't it work even if you're dealing even even if you're working within sample data why wouldn't that work on a model level so anyway i just want to throw that in because it comes back to this point about diversification.
3: Well, um, let, let me first, before we go into the uh, walk forward and all that, let me touch on the value piece, right? Because I think this is very difficult to answer. The, you have on the one side, you have the big value proponents, such as Cliff S. Nas from AQR or Rob Arnott, who want to stick to the strategy, come hell or high water, right? Then you have the track record of Warren Buffett, See value investor. Yeah, people say he's a value investor. Some people like Mike Green say he's the best leveraged short put seller that has ever existed, using a lot of tax advantages and, and leverage and, and getting some sweetheart deals done. So
2: and cheap funding from insurance flow.
3: Yeah, exactly, right? Cheap funding from insurance flowed. You have all these revenues, all those assets that you can work with while they become liabilities, and then you have to honor the claims that come to you. But until that point in time. Those are your assets and the returns that you make on them are yours. So a company such as Pepsi or Coca-Cola, I guess, you know, some people will drink Coca-Cola in the next uh, 10 years and, and therefore those firms stay around. Of course, there could always be managerial mistake at the board level and the companies, the companies no longer exist. But firms such as Exxon, I mean, there, there are so many companies, so many names that used to fall firmly into the value bucket. And their prices have been going down and down and down and down. So if you're a value investor in a systematic way, for instance, such as AQR, what do you do? You buy them. It's akin, and this is what Mike Green is telling us, and and I actually agree with his view of that, it's akin to being short puts all the time. You're essentially forcing yourself to behave in a opposite way of a trend follower and pick those stocks up. Because their price becomes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, you know, we would be short those stocks, but those people become more long. But who's to say that, you know, this is really the right strategy? There's a lot of risk in this as well. When you think about all the stuff that's happening here in Europe, for instance, with regards to ESG, in Switzerland you're going to have a vote about the S and B, you know, needing to become ESG conform. If the vote goes through. I think it's a little bit of a coin toss, maybe leaning towards, yeah, Swiss people want the S&B to become the green S&B. They need to liquidate 11% of their portfolio, including Exxon. We see massive flows, you know, and, and I can say that with a muni view here as well. Massive flows, all the big institutional funds, by regulation, by taxonomy, or by their own choosing, they tend to stay away more and more from firms such as Exxon. Exxon pays a 10% dividend yield right now, you know? It's at 37 or 36 bucks. And it, it, it's, it has a 10% div yield. <laughs> but we don't invest. We don't touch them. Somebody else can do that, right? We put our flows into renewable energies companies, many of which are small cap, and we completely distort their prices. When I say we, it's not necessarily my firm, but it's the market in general. That's how we, you know, where we see flows moving, It goes into tech it goes into apple it goes into google right it goes into tesla we we see all that so i i find it very difficult therefore to say that only because you're looking at the metric of value versus growth right and and we've seen the quant quake you know this this actually has been a major quant quake in the past couple of years it's just you know the complete deterioration of value versus growth and If you are a massive believer in value, then you'd be picking that up all the time. You know, you'd be getting more aggressive, picking up value and more aggressive selling growth. And I'm not sure if the the risk in that is that there is a risk of ruin. You may just do that and go to zero. So therefore, I think, you know, being a value investor is in a way being short puts. So you have to be very careful with that strategy. I'm not saying that it doesn't have a, a, a you know, a it doesn't deserve a footprint in some people's portfolio. It doesn't have a footprint in mine, but that's just you know my choosing. I don't deal with fundamental numbers. I don't want to do balance sheet analysis. I don't want to do PEs and cape ratios and 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 all of that stuff. It's just not for me. But for many people, that is what they do. But you have to be really kind of like you know stealth believer that because, only because value has been research for 40 50 years and then there seems to be something with value and there's warren buffett around this is going to be the thing that you want to be doing for the next 40 years and i think there's a big big question mark behind that especially if the world becomes more dominated by tech
2: i guess it feels like now i should be the guy defending value now that that moritz has taken the opposite position but that's quite easy for me to do because i do have an allocation to value in my portfolio so uh my my uk equities long long only uk equities portfolio is allocated according to some systematic um sim- sim- very simple valuation metrics and i don't know I, i've got a soft spot for value because it almost feels like a strategy you don't need to backtest because you're it's a bit like carry in that you're you're you don't there's, you don't need a, a sort of hu- human emotional bias there like i think you do with momentum to to justify it um it's literally like okay this thing is on the shelf, and it's worth a hundred dollars, and I can buy it for fifty dollars. Okay, so that that that's you don't need to backtest that, right? The, the sort of there's a simplicity about that idea which which I find attractive, and I I'll be honest with you, i I think my kind of my nature as a as a human being, my psychological nature, my bias is to be a value investor, which is probably why my my, my momentum portfolio is fully systematic, right? Because if I if I had to manually, you know, as a discretionary trader, try and trade momentum, I'd probably really struggle to do it. It really goes against my grain. Now, of course, the problem is exactly what you identify, Moritz. It's not just that we need to buy things that are on the shelf and we think are worth $100 for $50. We have to say, well, why is it $50? Why is the market valuing this thing so cheaply? And I guess the one school of thought is the one you've identified, which is, well, okay, this is a sector that's in secular decline. The earnings are going to fall consistently probably from now until the point when the company goes bust. And therefore, the P-E ratios should, should, you know, you shouldn't be paying a kind of market average 20 P-E ratio for that. It probably only is worth a 15 or a 10 or an, a 5 P-E ratio. The thing is actually worth what, what you can pay for it. But um, the other argument is, well, actually, a lot of the time when, th- you know, things are on the shelf for $100 and you can buy them for 50, that is a temporary mispricing. It is because a particular sector is having bad news, or maybe it's just because equity investors generally have become more defensive. Or it could be because of, you know, the unusual situation we've, we've been in recently where a lot of the kind of, you know, the sort of real economy, if you like, has been shut down, while a lot of the tech economy, companies like Zoom, I guess Peloton, you know, who make bikes you can exercise on in your home, companies like that have, have been kind of over-disadvantaged by the by, by the COVID restrictions. Um, but that's a temporary, you know, we, we think it'll be a temporary measure and and that's why the vaccine news was so welcomed and caused this such a rapid turnaround. And I, I think the truth is somewhere between those two things. so I, I agree with you. I do think that there are times when a company or a sector is cheap because it it's in secular decline and it's justified or you know or maybe on a stock specific basis there's just some really bad news about that company and the the price reflects that. But I do think there are times when it's temporary, it's cyclical and you you can buy things for uh, hundred you know that are worth a hundred dollars for fifty dollars. The truth is somewhere between those two and I guess the difference between a systematic and a sort of discretionary value manager so the difference between you know cliff and Warren if you like is that um you know as, as a systematic investor you don't necessarily try and differentiate between those two things you know maybe you can refine your metrics and your selection criteria to a degree so that you can try and differentiate between those two things but you know mainly mainly speaking you're buying value as a factor you know you're buying it as a whole, you know you're investing in a large portfolio of value stocks to reduce your idiosyncratic risk. Whereas a, someone like Warren Buffett, you are more discretionary, and you are trying to differentiate between you know the the Pepsi and the Coke, which you know as we know Mr. Buffett loves, and between the oil companies which are in secular decline, and uh, you know and buying buying on one and not and not the other, and that requires you know skill and expertise and experience. Which the systematic strategy doesn't really embody, uh, which is fine. I mean that you know it's a lot simpler to run a systematic value strategy. I, I certainly couldn't do what Buffett does, even without the the advantages you've discussed. But I'm quite happy spending about five minutes a month running my little systematic equity value strategy. That that suits me just fine. So yeah, you know I think I think value is 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 um, there's a place for value in everyone's portfolio. I think the the message. If there's one word that would sum up how I feel about the advice you should give to people, it's diversification. And if, you know, if you're not diversified across as many asset classes, factors, sources of returns, you know, whatever you want to call them, as possible, then then you're, you're missing something. So in the same way that Moritz thinks that I'm a, a complete wuss for not investing in Bitcoin, I think he's missing a trick by not having any, any value in his portfolio. But, you know,
1: that's just my opinion. It's kind of funny that we have a strategy called value, but we don't have a strategy called overvalue. I mean, you could argue the same. I mean, some companies are just so far overvalued that they uh, should be sold.
2: Well, the, the classic long-short, you know, equity strategy would, of course, buy buy you know the the top sure. quartile and sell the bottom quartile. But of course, you can do it on a long-only basis as well, which means you you don't try and short the overvalued ones; you just don't touch
1: them. Yeah. Staying on this topic, actually, one of the questions we have in from uh, Mervin coming in from someone that I actually know well, so uh, nice to hear from you, Mervin. He does invest in systematic strategies like trend-following have done for a while, but he has a question for us. And that is, are there any other systematic strategies that you would recommend looking into to complement a core trend-following holding? So staying on that theme, Rob, why don't you kick that off and say, okay, in this case, his core holding is a trend-following portfolio portfolio what would you supplement it with? I mean, Moritz is right. In, Other than value, of course. Well,
2: yeah, but, but actually <laughs> Moritz's point about selling puts is very relevant because trend following is a little bit like buying straddles. So it's a long, a long volatility, a long gamma strategy. So the obvious thing to supplement the trend following with is something that diversifies to the short gamma side. So carry, which I have a big chunk of in my portfolio, value would be another one. Any kind of systematic option strategy is likely to have a bias towards, you know, being short volatility because that, that's a source of, uh, of, of return premium. I mean, just, but you know, just generally, you know, a kind of long, short equity, you know, is relatively uncorrelated to, um, to moment, you know, a sort of CTA type momentum strategy. That's probably, again, a little bit of a negative skew strategy, um, although, you know, not as obviously as something like carry is. And the other thing to, to think about maybe doing is diversifying across across time. So if, if it's his portfolio is anything like mine, it's probably something like a, a holding period of an average of about, say, a month or three months. So you can either go longer, which would be something like value, which is, you know, a, you really need a kind of three to five year window or something much shorter. So if, if you can find a, a, you know, a profitable, shorter term, maybe counter trend strategy, then that would be something to look at as well.
1: Yeah. What about you, Moritz? Yeah. I'm, Just uh,
2: Bitcoin, right, Moritz? Yeah.
3: Bitcoin's great. Of course. I mean, Bitcoin has been massively diversifying my returns in the past couple of weeks. Uh, but Bitcoin hasn't been around prior to 2009. And, you know, back then, certainly I didn't have a look at that thing, right? I mean, I got first in touch with it in 2013, 2014, that, that time period, I think, 2013, probably. But I didn't even buy any in 2013 because I thought it's uh, it's poison, right? So it, it took me until 2015 to actually, you know, jump over the fence and and get long. But anyway, this is not about Bitcoin. The question is, what type of other trading strategies could one use in order to diversify one's portfolio? I'd say whatever you can find that has a positive expectancy and isn't perfectly correlated to trend following, right? Now, I'd like to stay away from strategies that have too much of a negative skew, too much of a left tail, because even though as Rob has said, it's kind of like, you know, trend following is akin to being long strangles or long straddles. You know, it does have a long volatility, long gamma positive convex profile. That's because we're keeping our losses short or very little, and then we let our winners run. But it's not always like that remember march right we have these massive drops in the equity markets this v-shaped you know thing oh yeah that is very volatile but we didn't have any long gamma there right i mean we were just uh, just losing money as was everybody else so i like to have strategies that are uncorrelated to my trend following but still positively convex right and you can go on the lookout for these and find them, and systematically backtest them, and combine them with trend following. Carry strategies are normally the opposite. Mean reversion strategies are normally the opposite, right? They tend to make money, but they have a, they have a negative tail. They're left skewed strategies, so sometimes uh, they let you standing in the rain. By the way, I want to give I want to mention one, and, and maybe Niels, you know him, Richard Brennan from Down Under, very active on on LinkedIn. He has yesterday posted a a very nice blog, which I recommend that people read. And that's about combining portfolios just of trend-following funds. Kind of like a fund of fund, fund of trend-following funds, right? And of course, you know, there's like Efficient and you know, our friends in Chicago who are doing something like that. But you know what he's done? He's just looked at all the funds that have a longer than 20-year track record. And he's blending them together and he's rebalancing them Using the the MA ratio, so here you have it—just a bunch of strategies. Ten, right? They're all trend-following in nature. They all have this very nice feature of being positively convex, if you will, or you know, they over longer holding periods they tend to be right-skewed. And the the picture, the 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 result of that is just beautiful. So you don't necessarily have to go in, into I don't know selling puts or or doing carry or doing mean reversion or anything where you go like okay because I'm long gamma long vol even though you know we say that is that is the case technically speaking we're not long gamma we're not long vol right i mean if volatility rises our nav off, we, we don't have vega we don't have gamma right but people just say that way and therefore i'm now selling puts on equities because this is a nice complement to my trend following portfolio well i don't know i think there's better ways of doing that
1: Well, I mean, you've obviously touched on on most of the things. I mean, I would, generally speaking, kind of along the lines of of what you said, Mort, try and keep things very simple. I probably would um, overall look at at the portfolio uh, from a either convergent or divergent standpoint just to be aware of where the allocations fall because there are obviously different risk profiles from these strategies. Of course having done this for for a while i fall more in the camp of divergent strategies like trend following uh, like uh, some kind of long volatility uh, type strategy or even a hybrid where you can be both but but at least you have the flexibility and if you if you have if you have to have an allocation to equities uh, you know we know that the combinations of equities and, and trend following is very powerful so I think that that is also something that's worth considering, of course, even though it feels difficult maybe to buy equities after a 12-year bull run, but there we are. As long as it's complemented by trend following, I, I feel better about it. But I will also say a little bit like uh, both of you said, I also like the diversification of time frame, meaning that if you stay in the kind of very liquid space, and I actually think liquidity will be incredibly important going forward. Whenever this whatever we call it but when the next big crisis uh, come I think liquidity is going to be something that's going to save you so I like these liquid strategies future strategies so if you can find some shorter term managers that might be useful as well but also as you said Moritz I mean even different types of trend following can be diversifying in itself we know that now what When we say that, we of course don't know if it's the time frame that makes them different, if it's the markets they trade that makes them different, if it's the risk allocation, whatever, that makes them different. But the fact is that probably no two trend followers are the same. So uh, if you can establish people who've been around for a long time where their strategies have actually been through some some good and some bad periods in real time and they've survived it and adapted and so on and so forth that in itself is, is a great strategy as well Rob you wanted to say something?
2: Yeah just to pick up on that actually so in my own portfolio I've got about five different ways of measuring trends from you know this moving average crossovers up to various other things and these things are like correlated 90 to 95% and people may think well what, what, why, why are you doing this this is crazy but i'm like well you know okay maybe it only gives me a, a 10 or a 15% increase in in sharp because you know with five or six things that are correlated 90% that's all you can expect but that's free money i mean <laughs> you know it's not it's not like it's costing me anything i re- i write i write the extra code once do spend some time on backtesting and then the thing is just running and that's probably quite similar to investing in a bunch of similar trend following managers they They've got similar ways, they're going to have slightly different ways of measuring trends, slightly different portfolio allocations, you know, slightly different um, risk management rules and what, what have you. It always strikes me how, you know, even the, the three of us are supposedly doing the same thing, how different our views are on things like, you know, volatility sizing, for example. And uh, I know from speaking to other people across the industry that there are a lot of different ways of doing what, what seems like quite a similar thing. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's um, the best diversification is, of course, to move away to other things that are completely different but of course that has its downsides as we've discussed but you know it's it's almost free money sometimes the diversification you can get with with just a tiny little bit of extra effort and um you know it it seems people said to me well, why why wouldn't you just pick the best way of picking up trends and this is something a lot of retail traders say what's the best way of picking up trends i'm like i don't really know i've got five or six ways of doing it i don't know which is best so i just do them all and take an average you know
1: yeah makes complete sense. so Mervin, I hope this was helpful for you. I wish you all the best and also just to let you know, Rob, Mervin has read all your books and is a great fan, as he is of also Jack Swager's book, which of course we also are great fans of. So let me move on to uh, the last couple of questions that we had in from our listeners and then we'll add some of your uh, topics as well, uh Rob. This is a question that I know we've discussed in the past, Moritz, with, with with Jerry, and it, it it's from Daniel, I should say, by the way. The first question is, how do you think about open equity versus closed equity in terms of drawdowns? I understand the industry standards, maybe clients are definitely regulation, will use open equity, but I don't see the logic of using open equity uh, drawdown especially for longer-term trend following, where the system design is to exit the position when the trend starts going the other way? It's a long question, but I think maybe that gives us enough to go with open versus closed equity. Do you want to kick that off, uh, Moritz, since I know it's something we've debated with Jerry?
3: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to take a start there. I, I don't measure... Drawdown relative to open trade equity, I've never done it. I definitely measure it relative to closed equity, and I measure it compared to my net asset value. So closed equity plus open trade equity equals the net asset value. But just looking at the drawdown of the open trade equity, to me, that has never I, it doesn't occur to me why that would be a meaningful metric for me to have a look at you know, because I'm quite liberal with my open trade equity to begin with. I'll, I'll let that fluctuate and at some point it hits its, its stop or exit. But yes, I do look at drawdown relative to closed trade equity because that is capital that's in my pocket. And um, in relation to my net liquidation value, so to say.
2: Is this something you've
1: been thinking about as well, Rob? Uh,
2: yeah, This is one of those weird things where my career is basically, you know, working in institution, in sort of an institutional world for a long time, and then seven years ago, you know, effectively retiring from the industry and, you know, writing books and, and then coming into contact with people a lot more on the sort of retail side. And uh, one of the things that struck me was talking to people who are more from the retail side is is a lot of them are obsessed with the difference between open and closed positions and open and closed equities and open and closed drawdowns. And for me, this was completely bewildering, frankly, because you know, if, if I, it makes no difference to me. Let us keep it simple. Suppose I, I buy shares in I don't know Tesla at three hundred dollars, um, and the price falls by a hundred dollars, so I'm down a hundred dollars a share. Does it really matter whether I I cl- now close that position or or whether I hang on to it? I've still lost a hundred dollars. And there seem to a lot of you know there's kind of view that you know you hear people say things like oh well it's not a loss until you take it and all and all this kind of stuff that that. And and they sort of it to me just seems weird. I can't understand it because um, you know, my background's in economics and um at university I would you take courses in accounting and, and you learn about things like mark to market accounting. Um and um, you know, when I when I started trading in, in investment banking, I'm sure my boss would have been really happy if if I'd say lost a, a million dollars in a week and said to him, It's okay, it's okay, because I haven't actually closed the trade yet. I'd still be, you know, being given a, a, a one of those boxes to put all my things in and walk out the door with. It's irrelevant as to whether the trade is open or closed. The money's been lost under mark to market accounting. So, I've I've never really been able to understand why you'd have any distinction between open and closed anything. Uh, and in fact, sometimes I think it can lead to to dangerous behaviour because, you know, let's say you're running a, a trend following system, but you're you're doing it manually. And, and um, you know the thing starts to move against you, you're th- and you start thinking, well, it's okay, it's not a loss. It's hit my stop loss, but it's not really a loss because I haven't closed the position yet. I'm just going to hang on. And then of course, it, you know, you you basically broken the rules of your system, and you're no longer trend following. You're just you know randomly gambling and exiting when you feel like it. So um, not not only have I I never d- I've never done it. I actually generally find the question confusing because it, it it doesn't really fit into my my worldview, which is that you should just always mark to market you know, it doesn't matter whether positions are open or closed. The only thing it might have an effect on is is your, you know, your margin usage, for, ex- for example, because obviously the more open positions you have, um, you know, the, the higher your margin usage will be. But generally speaking, with, with the kinds of portfolios and risk levels that, that we run, you know, we, we're normally using only perhaps a quarter or a third of our capital at most for margin anyway.
1: Now, I want to hear maybe Moritz's respond to that a little bit, but I want to add something uh, about it because maybe people are a little bit confused when 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 you say Moritz that you're very liberal with your open trade equity. Isn't it just in? And this is my interpretation of it. Doesn't it just mean that in in a sense you you um, your stops are perhaps slow to to um, to move up along with the price in general meaning you're not really it's not that you're relaxed about it it's just that once you have made some money i mean it'll take a little bit of time if the market moves out quickly before your stops catches up because you're not you're not taking more risk per se your risk was decided when you entered the trade right
3: correct the risk is decided when i enter the trade and uh, i will keep that trade intact until an exit is hit that can be the initial stop loss or it can be the exit over time for that position so that position now has some open trade equity but i'm not only because i see these at this equity only because i see the dollars right the green dollars the positive number that stares in my face uh you know i don't want to move stops up or reduce risks or do vault controlling trades or do this that any other thing in order to get closer to the honey pot. my and i've said this before with wall targeting i find it very important to let these winners run, right, and that means that I need to be in a position to accept the fact that my open trade equity will be volatile. I need to give it that room. I'm not too fussed about it, but I'm very, very tight with my close equity because that's in my pocket. You know, when I when I take the position and it goes against me, it eats into my equity. Then no, 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 that becomes a hot potato. I want to get out, right? But if it has something positive on the clock. Yeah, fine. Let's play with that, right? It could. It's kind of like you see it. It is still, you know, this is money that the market has given to me. Of course, you know, I can click the mouse and take that money. I can, you know, succumb to the bait. Here it is. It, it You know, it's almost my money. I could take it. But nobody forces me to do that. You know, I can still risk that money. And it feels very much better to me to risk that money, which the market has already given to me, than
2: paying it out of my own pocketbook. So to be clear, Moritz, would that mean in simple terms, you, you put a position on today and you might have, say, a 5% stop loss. If you then make a 25% profit on that, your stop loss would, would be, I don't know whether you would go all the way back down to flat or whether you would say, okay, now I'm going to happy to increase my stop loss to 10%. Maybe you don't do it formally like that, but does, does, is that kind of the behavior that the system gives you? Well, you know, it it depends a a little bit on, uh, you know, how the market develops. You know, if it jumps
3: up, uh, if I have a position and it jumps up 25% the next day, then, you know, my stop will no longer be 5% below my entry or, you know, whatever number hours below my entry, right? Uh, That stop will move up and it will now essentially be at a point where I should make a profit if I don't gap through that stop.
2: Would it be a similar level? No, not necessarily. So it's not it's not a pure it's not a pure trailing stop in other words. Uh,
3: it, it is I'm I'm using trailing stops yeah. right but I'm I'm it's not I'm not doing them always in the in a linear fashion. So I've I've I think you know and probably in one of the first 20 or 30 episodes I probably touched on that if I have these very fast runaway markets. The example of for instance a market gapping 25% higher in a single day. That causes my trading stop behavior uh, to react in a different way than if that 25% up move happened over the course of 100 days because if if like if my trailing stop is hey i'm looking at the low of let's just you know say the last 100 days right and the market gaps 25% up then well my stop is still down there it hasn't moved right it is still the the 100 day low it doesn't recognize that there has been this massive you know fast way market so if I see something like that, or if my system detects something like that, that will trigger a certain behavior in my stop practice. And therefore it will protect some of the profit that has been achieved through that move. But if the move is more smoothly dispersed over a hundred days, it's, you know, same old, same old.
2: Okay. Let, maybe let me try answering asking the question in a different way, because uh, I, I think that the way you trade does actually treat open and closed equity differently, whereas I don't. So let me put it this way my trading pattern will be irrelevant regardless of what trades whether I've got a position open in a particular market so I'll be bearish or bullish on a particular market regardless of whether I've already opened a trade on it so in other words let's I could let's say I've never never traded before I turn my computer on today it'll do certain trades over the next week or so if I turn my computer on in a week's time having never traded before it would basically end up taking broadly speaking there is this this to do with buffering that means that wouldn't happen but it would basically want to take the same positions on even though it hasn't hold those positions for a week so that 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 to me means i'm treating open and closed equity differently because i'm i don't care whether i'm in the market or not does that make sense and i think you're doing something different it sounds like you are
3: i didn't
1: follow your example maybe it was too fast it allows the example I get what Moritz is saying, and I think it's not. Yeah. I don't think it's unusual to say, yeah. I mean, of course, if you have a massive move up, you have certain things in your stop loss rules that moves your stop more quickly than if it's a slow move up. I think that's that's just rules, and and I and maybe it's just a narrative. Meaning, I think what Moritz does, many people do. But maybe they don't talk about it uh, in the same way, saying, I, I'm more liberal with my open profits. I mean, I think we all agree that that uh, in, in, in trend following, you sometimes need to... We know markets will correct they, they don't go up in a straight line or they don't go down in a straight line, right? They, will have, they need a little bit of breathing space. And that's essentially what I think Moritz is trying to what he's saying is that yeah i mean the trade needs a bit of breathing space if it's going in my way i'm not going to strictly follow it by by always being one yeah you know atr behind or below the, the the trade kind of thing it's not a linear stop moving up every single day
2: i guess what i'm trying to understand is is so for i don't actually use stop losses in my main momentum portfolio anyway but, but, but um, In the systems I've designed that do have stop losses in them, the 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 sizing of the stop loss it obviously depends on various factors. I mean, and volatility is a big part of that. So you know, whether measured by ATR or standard deviation, and we've already had that debate I think on this program. So, um, but um, the point, um, the main point is for me, I will have a particular stop loss in a particular market on any given day, regardless of whether I have a position, whether I've had that position for a week or a month or six months. And regardless of how much open profit there is in there, the amount of open, whether it's been profitable or not, is completely irrelevant to me. And that, I think, is
1: the difference. But but maybe I don't understand exactly what you're saying here, Rob. Surely you don't have the same stop loss uh, if the market action is different a month from now, right? You're not going to have exactly the same well, you just said you don't have a stop loss in the first place. So I'm not entirely sure I know what you yeah, mean. No, you, you must be having a, a different exit point. Let's call it that, whether it's a stop loss or reversal. I don't, you know. It's conditioned perhaps
2: on market action, but it's not conditioned on, right. my, on my profitability and when I took the position,
1: how much open no, of equity course, sure. I have.
2: That's the, the yeah. distinction. That's the thing. point I'm trying to make, I think. Badly, clearly. <laughs>
1: But maybe that's the same with Moritz, actually. You could turn it around and say, well, it's just based on the market action. It's not really calculating what my open profit is. It's a stop-loss rule that obviously takes into account an unknown market action. But if the market does this, the stop will do that. And if the market does this, that's a good way of describing it.
3: When you think about it, we've just mentioned at the beginning of this recording that, you know, a trend-following strategy could be seen as being long a straddle or long a strangle. So we're paying a little bit of premium. Those are all our small losses. They actually eat into our equity. Like I said, I'm very tight with those. I don't want that to be too much, right? I don't want to pay too much premium. So I'm getting out. That's a hot potato. Throw the trade away. Don't worry about it. There'll be another 10,000 trades over my lifetime. This is just one. Don't worry about it. Get rid, get out of it. We may even have to get back in two days from now, right? Or Or tomorrow even. But then when those open profits show up, when you look at your brokerage statement, right, you have your open positions, That what you see. Most of them will have, you know, over time, a positive P L. is money that we just need to... You cannot go to the honeypot there as a trend follower and say, I just want to grab that and take it off the table because this is not the strategy. This is then no longer the straddle. This is no longer the strangle. You have to let that stuff run. And this is where a lot of the years, and Jerry has said that before, they are saved because you have one or two markets that go to the moon. And you, you just need to let them do that. You cannot, must not. I mean, take some profit off the table if you want, but don't close that position. You have to be fine. And, and you know, as, as a trader, you have to have that emotional control to let that open equity evaporate. It, it is necessary for trend following to work, in, in my honest opinion. I don't see any other way. If you don't do that, if, if you're if you're capping those profits, and you're taking them off the table too soon, because of whatever reason, because you're moving your stops to close, because you're doing vol control, this any other thing, this is very much impacting the nature of trend following, and 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 that is not what I want to do. So therefore, it is the market's money shows up in my open position statement right it's kind of like the P L of my trading system the edge of my trading system that shows up there i need to be willing to risk that again and keep it keep it on the table keep the chips on the table and keep playing with that money stay in that game to grow that pot larger but as soon as i become the net payer because i'm putting up positions and they you know they move against me then no 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 i don't like that game i move away so therefore i'm very tight with closed
2: capital and I'm very open with open. So I, I was, my understanding was correct, and and it does go back to what I said earlier about dif- we were discussing about different managers doing the different things. I mean, in many ways, you know, the Moritz and I are very much on the same wavelength, but actually, the way we trade is really quite different. And if you looked at our return streams, you you wouldn't necessarily see that much difference between them. But I would imagine that there's probably more of a classic trend following profile about Moritz's. In other words a lot of small losses and a few very big gains. Yes. A, lot, a big right a big right tail, a big positive skew. Whereas, you know, my portfolio is probably a little bit more Gaussian. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that in doing that, I'm getting something out of it. I'm getting a higher sharp ratio, perhaps. And um, actually, you know, it, it comes down as well to your preferences and why you're doing this. So, you know, when I was working for for AHL, we were very much selling a trend falling product and we would try and, you know, manufacture it to be, you know, as, as trend following as possible and, and you know, avoid things like having say too much carry in the portfolio. That was always a big debate. How much carry should we have? How much momentum? Because, you know, we had this sort of top down institutional constraint to have a bit, a bit more, you know, more momentum and, le- and less carry. Whereas now I'm, I'm more on constrained than I can have a, a bit more of an even blend. I'm aiming more for maximum sharp rather than something that looks, you know, more like trend following. And Moritz has a different approach and and that's fine. As I think as a, as a client of a fund, it's important to understand you know what the risk profile is what the the manager's doing and and um make sure that lines up with you, with your own preferences but beyond that there's you know there's there's no kind of single way of it's not like Moritz is wrong and I'm right or vice versa it's just that we we have different different preferences and that feeds into slightly different ways of doing things
1: no i i agree i agree that I, there is no right or wrong answer i do think however that maybe we're we're Complicating matters a lit, a little bit too much. And
2: that, that's that's generally what I unfortunately end up doing. I think
1: right. No, no. But let's just think about it. And this is just really thinking outside the box. So I don't. I could be completely wrong here, but just uh play with me here, let's just say that Moritz has fifty markets he trades, and he to make it simple, he gets buy signals on all of them, and they all go in his direction. Right, slowly. And over a six-month period, suddenly, from your closed trades, from when you got in, they all got in on the same day, to make it even simpler, you're up 50%. But it's all open profits, right? But it's over a six-month period. So if you were a manager, if you were looking at your, your month returns, they would go up and up and up and up and up, and your uh, you know, NAV would be up by 50% over that six-month period. My point is, I don't really think that people don't care about giving back that 50%. I really don't think that's the case. You you, you would care if you went up from $100,000 in your account to 200000 and then down to 100000 I think we would care, right? And I think we should care. So, I, so even if it's is, all open... Pro- so let me just finish this. Because I think what's happening is that when we design our systems, we look for these, but we don't... I don't know that we look for it whether it's open or closed profits, but we would look for a 50% drawdown and say, hmm, I'm not so sure I really want to trade this model because that's a huge drawdown and we couldn't care less if it's open or closed profits, frankly. So I, I, I get the point about designing the stop strategy and the exits to give a trend room. That I agree with. But I don't know if I agree with saying I don't care about open profit because if it's big enough, we will care about it, not giving it all back. And and so, yes, Moritz, you move, your stop, like we all do. But I don't know about whether I'm so fussed whether it's open or closed equity per se. I, because from a design point of view, yes, I need to give the trend some room. So that's my philosophy. It needs room, and it you know the stop doesn't move up every single day. I completely agree with that. But I don't think I could say to someone, "Oh, I don't care about the open profit because if I was only having open profits, but it could also mean that my stop is fifty all my stops have meant that I could lose fifty percent, I bloody well would care.
3: fascinating, absolutely fascinating. i'm I'm really in a different camp here. Um, let me use your example to make that point real clear. I do care. It does hurt, right? If, if I'm losing all that open trade equity, that is crappy. But it is a question of mindset and attitude and how you approach trend following. And I think this is quite interesting that we have a, a different view there. To use your example, say I'm doing 50 trades and I, I put all of those 50 on on a Monday, right? They They all happen, some magic. They all happen at the same time. And they never move against me. This was your example. They just all move up. They all produce open trade equity, right? Okay, this is great. Let's say I'm up 50%, right? My stops have moved up, say, you know, if, if, and let's just assume we don't gap through stops, right? I can now stand back and look at that system and I can observe the drawdown on my closed equity. And that has always been zero because you have just, in your example, said that all of those 50 markets move up. I've never had a, a closed equity drawdown. A this is very very important, and it puts me in a position to say, fantastic, I'm I'm out of the woods, I'm not losing. Second observation is, my stop is probably now ten or twenty percent higher, and assuming that I don't have a gap, I know that I will end up with a profit.
1: Yeah, but that it, I proves will my end point up with a profit. Exactly, right? I will and be that a proves winner, my point.
3: Yeah, right? that, that proves so my I'm, point. I'm feeling fantastic.
1: Yeah, and it's like, but it also- let's go for <laughs> it and this is so I important can, it also <laughs> pro, it also proved my point moritz and that is you do care because you do move your stops so you're st- so you're open of course I equity, move my stops. so to speak you will never lost the, lose the 50 percent. that's my point so i just think it's the narrative it's the way we talk about it yeah. i would talk about saying yeah i want to move my stop. i want to you know the trend i want to protect the, the 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 profits along the way but it doesn't mean i'm going to move the stop every day And I think Moritz is saying exactly the same. I'm just not saying that I don't care about the open profit. I do because I look at the account every single day and I don't want to get to a 50% drawdown at any time, even if it was just open profit. I wouldn't want that. And I think we're we end up in the same place. It's it's the way we talk about it. Yeah. This is the
2: weird thing because I think if you actually looked at our behavior of our systems, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell the difference. It'd be quite subtle differences. Right. I mean yeah. I I you know I couldn't even tell you how much open or closed equity I have in my account. I've 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 literally no yeah. I've literally no idea it's a figure I never ever look at. I'd have to log into my brokers and, and look at it because I'm so indifferent as to whether my equity is open or closed that, you know, I, I couldn't even tell you the figures. Anyway, right, I think we I should
1: just look at the one number, but we need to move I on. I think we but, need to move on. Yeah. But it's
2: been a very interesting discussion <laughs> nonetheless.
1: Yeah. Daniel, see what you got us into. And you even have another question here, which um, which we will, of course, do so. Daniel's second question is: I'm starting to think about hedging or using a spread type position for longer-term trend following in equities. Your trend following system could be long Apple, for example, but you could be short something like the E minis or the spy. So what you are doing is betting on Apple will outperform the market. Obviously, this will reduce the absolute returns, but it may make the difference to drawdowns uh, or risk adjust returns. Question mark. You may also do this only if the market does something i start going down when you're along in the long apple example uh, and take it off again if the market starts to go back up again i've seen tom basso uses a similar approach but i don't think uh, hedging trend following positions has been mentioned much in the podcast uh, thoughts let's make it a short one here um hedging uh, trend following positions i'm not so sure any of us do that
2: it's, it's interesting because you're in a way you're kind of doing two different things when you start behaving like this you, you're basically combining two kinds of strategy you're combining classic trend following with what we talked about earlier, which is kind of long short value you know or whatever the metric is by which you like Apple and more than the rest of the market and um, I think you need to be quite careful in terms of understanding like where your returns are coming from so generally speaking. The, the trends that are happening are happening at quite a big sort of macro level. So, you know, generally speaking, most equity markets go up at the same time. And actually, I have a strategy, you know, a trading rule that explicitly does that. It looks at the the average trend across all equity markets. And if that's positive, it goes long all equity markets. And then, you know, I have rules that look at the markets individually as well. And, um, you know, I've, I've seen people do things quite successfully, which is, for example, to do trend following at a, a sector level, Basically, so you're you're trend following, say, you know, U.S. utilities, U.S. tech, and so on and so forth. But then, what you do to to express your view, of course, you could just buy a sector ETF. Of course, you could just do that. That would be just like buying, you know, the whole thing. But then, what they do within that is they say, okay, if I'm going to be long this sector, let's say you're long U.S. tech, you then bring in your 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 valuation or your your momentum or whatever metrics you're using, and you selectively go long the stocks that look most attractive on that basis. So you're you're doing you're combining your your momentum view on the sector with your kind of intra-sector view on on value or growth or whatever to buy the cheapest stocks. And if you're going to be short a particular sector, then you choose the most overvalued stocks stocks within the sector and go short those. Um, so that's probably and to me at least a more natural way of combining these these two different styles. I think if if you you know if you're going long Apple but short the market, I mean that's basically just a hedged. Relative value bet on Apple. It's no longer a momentum strategy anymore. Um, whereas doing this other th- this other way of doing it, you are still maintaining the character of
1: the momentum there. Cool. If it's okay with you, Moritz, I'll move on to um, final question. Yeah, cool. This is from Antonio, and this is about different kinds of moving averages. Antonio writes, so far I've been unable to see best results with integrating moving average and exponential moving average in my trend following strategy, whilst the Arnaud Legault moving average, ALMA, seems to be cutting trend reversals more accurately and contributing to less negative PNL periods. It bears the question that I'll ask in a less technical way. Trend followers frequently mention simple and exponential moving averages as a component of their strategy. There are other moving average algorithms out there. I wonder if one particular moving average could intrinsically be the best due to its algorithm alone, or if the algorithm is secondary to sticking with the one the biggest market movers use. So it must be biggest funds, given the nature of trend following. I have to say... I don't know what an ALMA moving average is, so I'm going to pass that. I just had to go on to
2: Rob, (laughs) but I'll I'll just very quickly because I'm sure Moritz has something to say as well. But I already answered this question earlier when I said I had about six or seven different ways of measuring trends, and I didn't. I don't actually know which is the best, and I don't think you can even answer that question. So I I just use an average of them all. Um, So you know that that's. I think picking one individual method is potentially going down the road to overfitting. That's my opinion, at least, anyway. Yeah. What about you, Marts? Do you know no, how... I, I,
3: don't, I don't have that much more, actually. I Exactly, d- diversify if you can with your portfolio size. I mean, this is normally the limiting factor, right? Diversify across markets and diversify across styles and diversify across timeframes. So what does that mean? Diversify across markets means trade many markets. Obviously, the larger your portfolio, the more markets you can trade diversify across style to me that means you know if you have a breakout strategy that's you know thing that i that i trade but you could you know uh, absolutely combine a breakout strategy with moving average or a crossover or regression based slope based you know trend detection system and all of those i think have their or time series momentum very classic right and and all of those have have high correlations to one another but they're not perfect, right? So there's, like, like Rob was saying earlier, that is essentially free money for you to harvest right there. It will improve your risk adjusted returns if you do that, but it requires you to have the capital. And then finally, all of those types that I've mentioned can run on different speeds. They have different gears. You can run them very fast, you can run them super, super slow, and you can everything in between. And again, there is high correlation not as much actually between the very fast and the very slow, but nevertheless, they remain trend-following strategies, right? So if you have like in, in the middle where the fat is, there is positive correlation, but not perfect. And here's another source of diversification, which you can harvest really. And this is, you know, what I, I couldn't agree more with what Rob was saying. Once you have done that work, once you've written the code, running that code, the marginal cost is zero. You can just do that. You, you've done the work, you know, just change a parameter and, and hit enter. And there you go, produces a different output. So it is it is a, a worthwhile goal to really, you know, go into these directions and explore them. And I would not just trade one strategy with just one moving average, say, you know, 200 day moving average, and certainly not just one market. You know, there's there strategies out there that go like, oh yeah, here's the S&P 500. And here's the S&P 500 that is long flat using a 200-day moving average. Yeah, of course, fine. You you can look at that, right? But it has worked because of probably three or four signals uh, in in the past 20, 25 years, you know? and, And the massive one being the global financial crisis where, oh yeah, it got you out and you didn't suffer from that thing, but you stayed out of the market in cash for quite a long time. But your sample size is statistically insignificant, right? It's just, you're looking at that chart and only because that chart has a nice picture, you go like, that's the thing to do. But yeah, it's kind of like you rolled the dice on that one, right? You have actually no sample size, no p-value whatsoever, no confidence that what you're looking at here is actually repeatable.
2: Yeah, and on, on a similar vein, I would, I would imagine the listener, and, and I apologize if I'm incorrect about this, but... If you see one trend indicator being a lot better than another, it's quite likely you've got quite a small data set to come to that conclusion. So you probably looked at only one market or a small number of markets, and you probably looked at you know a relatively small amount of data. And you know 10 years sounds like a lot of data, but it's nowhere near enough to get any kind of statistical significance. And um, when I've tested these things over decades of data and over dozens of markets, I've, I've come to the conclusion that, you know, you can't really see a a big enough difference between one trend indicator and another to actually conclude, yes, this is the holy grail, this is the the one we want to use. I did some quick Googling while Moritz was talking, and just another cautionary word about this particular indicator is that it, it's it got a lot more parameters in it than the, just a moving average. So it's got a, a parameter called um sigma, and it's also got a parameter called offset, um, as well as the, the window size. So um, if you are going to use this indicator, and I'd su- suggest using it as part of a battery of other indicators, you know, not just this single one. Be aware there's more potential there for overfitting because it does have more parameters in it than, than just, you know, simple moving averages do.
1: Cool. Great stuff, guys. Now, that's all from the listeners uh, this week. And by the way, do keep your questions coming. As you can see, we really like debating them and you can email them to info at as usual. I do want to finish, or oh, before we finish, Rob, I do want to get into um, maybe one uh, of the topics you had written to uh, in, in advance of our conversation today. Almost I would let you choose which one it should be. Well,
2: I'm, I would... I There's
1: think... a couple of ones starting with tea. I don't know if any of those are tasty enough.
2: I thought it would be nice, actually, because, because you guys interviewed Jack Schwager not that long ago about his new book. Yeah. If I talked about Something I read in there that was very interesting. Is that okay? Let's do that. Yeah, that's. good. Cool. Yeah. So there's a, a there's Jack's new book, which is excellent, by the way. And I'm about two thirds of the way through reading the each chapter, as in his previous you know trade interviews with traders books, covers a different trader. So there's a, a chapter about a guy called Marston Parker. He sounds like a very interesting guy. And I was just looking at his Twitter profile, and it says systematic stock trader, stroke software developer, stroke violinist. So he, he sounds like an interesting guy, I have to say, a real renaissance man. But the, the thing that struck me is reading the introduction to the chapter that Jack's written. I'll just read the quotes and then ask you guys what, what your response is, really, because it's quite quite intriguing statements, I think. When I first looked at Parker's performance statistics, my initial response was that I probably would not include him in this book. Although his track record was certainly good, neither his return nor his return risk statistics were close to the spectacular levels achieved by most of the other traders I had already interviewed or was scheduled to interview. But then I noted that Parker's track record was 22 years long, a substantially longer period than most of the other traders I decided to include. And he goes on to the statistics in detail. There was another factor that was instrumental in my decision to include Parker. He was the only purely systematic trader I had found whose performance was sufficiently superior to even merit consideration for inclusion, perhaps the lopsided overrepresentation of discretionary versus systematic traders I found in my search for exceptional performance is not representative, but I suspect it is. Ever since the release of my first Market Wizards book, I've found that standout individual traders tended to be discretionary, and this bias seems to become more pronounced over the years. There may be many systematic traders who are profitable but few that outperform benchmarks by wide margins over long periods. So there we are. Jack, Jack's laid the gauntlet out there on the, the systematic versus uh, discretionary camp. So I just I just thought what you guys thought about that statement, whether you agree with it or not, is it fair and are there reasons for it?
1: Morris, do you want to kick it off or do you want me to kick it off?
2: So we, uh, Nils and I,
3: we actually asked that same question to
1: Jack and I think I
3: also asked it um, during the Real Vision interview. And like you say, he confirmed that you know most of the traders that he has in the book are discretionary traders. And, um, you know, as we know, and, and I know that for a fact, there are quite some really, really successful, purely systematic firms out there, not individual traders, but they are firms, but not super large firms, like, you know, firms that run geographical arbitrage systematically across commodity markets arbitraging the LME against the comax and you know trading in the onshore Chinese commodity markets there's funds out there trading digital currencies systematically automatically automated mechanically right sharp ratios of four five six with AUM of greater than 200 300 400 million and track records of seven eight years not the crypto guys but you know some of the commodity art funds and I mean this is Absolutely fantastic! Yeah, of course they don't have capacity for ten billion, right? But it is a an amazing track record. Renaissance would be, I guess, in the systematic camp, right? I mean, the man who solved the market—we probably have all read that book. They let their machines run. Jim Symms was saying, "Well, you know, there there have been one or the other instances where they didn't, but you know, we'll, I think we have to put them into system, systematic camp. What a success story! So I don't. I don't think that we can just jump to the conclusion and say that you have to be a discretionary manager in order to uh, be successful. That is certainly not true. There are some really, really wildly successful systematic guys out there. Now, the I guess the point why, or one of the reasons why they are included in the book is because as a discretionary manager, they tend to have much more concentrated positions and much more vol, right? If we are systematic traders, we diversify our portfolios, we at least I do, try to get as much diversification as I possibly can. But some of these discretionary traders, I have the feeling they they go for the juggler, Struganbiller would say it, right? And if you have a position that works for you, you just press that position and you have a lot of risk on that thing. And obviously, if that moves, you know, you can get these uh, plus 100, plus 200, plus 300% returns in a year. You have these standout returns and it produces these uh, track records where people go from you know having $50,000 to um you know a couple of million 10 million 20 million etc cetera, etc cetera, because they've they've done that a few times in a row i don't want to say that you know that is all just luck it clearly isn't you know they seem to have a feeling for the market they definitely have a they sniff out risk it seems very well they keep their lo- their losers little which is something that i like But they have much more concentrated positions, much more volatility than we would have with our trend following programs, for instance. And of course it is a much, much better story if you have a discretionary trader that goes like, Hey, I've identified that cannabis stock and I've identified that on social media, and therefore, you know, I've done this, that, and the other thing. Doesn't that sound a million times sexier than you know following a moving average? And you know, clicking on a mouse on a Monday.
2: I mean, I'm I'm clearly weird, but I actually enjoy reading the the systematic chapters much more in Jack's book. But you know, like the the chapter with Michael Platt in the um, you know the hedge fund wizards book is a, a really interesting chapter to read.
1: I, I I share a lot of the same things that Morris said. I mean, I think there are a few things. First of all, I think the narrative, of course. I mean, that's clear. You can't. It's going to be much more difficult to make a, a an interesting book for the wider audience based on on trend followers we know that narrative matters so that's one thing i will also say and 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 but by no means trying to take anything away from 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 the results that these people have had but i do think there's a difference right i mean first of all i would say that as far as i can remember at least all of the most successful managers that has a long Track record, really, for the most part, I think they're all systematic. Okay, so like Renaissance Technologies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If you take someone like Don Capital, I mean, we have a 46-year track record. You don't find many discretionary managers that last that long because it's very hard to keep going. And it may not be 800 or 300 percent or whatever it is per year, but compound over 46 years, it's 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 pretty awesome. So I think that, you know, when you write a book, yeah, you can find people that have done really well for 10 years and made a lot of money. And of course you will, with some of the stories that, that are in there, you certainly could debate whether there's a, a tremendous amount of luck involved as well. Not least that a lot of them are trading equities and equities have been in a bull market for the last 10 years or so but one thing and I, I and I don't know if we talked about this with Jack but I certainly think Moritz and I talked about it last week when we talked about uh, our interview with Jack and that is I also think that we shouldn't forget that in our industry we can't just say oh, I'm not going to include that year because that was my starting year that was a bad year don't worry about it you know. A lot of these managers blew up their account not just once but several times before their track record starts we can't do that in our industry i mean all our losses are in there it's on the table for everyone to see so it's of course not going to look as great as someone who said yeah the first three times i blew up my account that doesn't count but then it it did great so i think there are definitely pros and cons and um I think you're right. If you want to find these amazing stories that probably you have to look for, for discretionary managers if you're talking about just getting the highest possible return. But if you want longevity and something that is possible to replicate over long periods of time, I think you're all in this systematic camp. Frankly, and some of the trades we talked about, yeah, these guys, what they do have in common with a lot of what we do is that they're very prepared, they have a great mindset, they are unemotional, they know their risk management to some extent. I actually don't think that all of them, you could say that they were um, fully in control of risk because if you can make 800% in a day, can't you lose at least 100%? I think you could. So uh, you know, again, I, I have some 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 reservations about that, but um, I think for for uh, let the public record speak about success, and 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 for my at least for my part, I think most of the long term public records that we can find today fall into the systematic camp, but it doesn't take anything away from these unique individuals who have done well with smaller capital bases, of course, but they have obviously done very well.
2: Yeah, I mean. I think jack does try and use risk adjusted return statistics in his book i mean he's a big fan of uh, gpr gain to pain ratio but actually with a lot of these simple statistics and including Sharpe ratio it's possible to construct account account curves that actually are a bit you know you wouldn't necessarily want to invest in them but they have very high gain to pain ratios because maybe they you know they, they've traded for five years and they have three profitable days the gain to pain ratio is amazing but actually there's not enough data points in there that you'd say, yeah, this this guy really knows what they're doing. But that that's another point. I, I'm actually of the opinion, probably, that maybe less so in, in amongst institutional managers, less so amongst funds, but certainly amongst, you know, more retail traders. I think there are probably more high-end at the very top, I think it is more discretionary traders. And I think there's a very almost simple mathematical reason for that. The first is that there are more discretionary than systematic retail traders. Therefore, the distribution is bigger. Therefore, the tail's probably going to be wider. I think if there was an equal split of systematic and discretionary managers, then you'd see a more equal pattern at the top. And the other thing is that by doing dis- systematic trading, you are kind of limiting your yourself in the sense that you're probably putting a floor on your losses, if you like, because you're less likely to do something crazy or stupid or lose as much money as a, a pure discretionary trader would. I mean, you can give a you can give anyone a simple trading system and over a long period of time, they'll probably have reasonable returns, you know, even if they've got no particular skill. That kind of almost puts a floor on, on your return space. But I think to an extent, it also puts a little bit of a ceiling on, on how much money you can make because th- there there are times when, for example, I've seen opportunities in the market, like I know I hate to brag about it, but I did call the exact bottom in, in March in the equity markets and had i been one of one of, the, one of these gunslingers as you talk about i could probably have made that 800% on that day but but uh, you know my 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 kind of discipline and the way i operate means there was no way i was going to put that much risk into a single trading event so i i i made a little bit of money but not a lot so uh i think i think that's also got something to do with it so i think i think jack's right i think there are particularly in the retail space more the very very top it is more discretionary than 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 systematic, and I think there are good reasons for that. And but it doesn't necessarily mean that that you know that discretionary trading is a, automatically better than systematic. I'd say on average amongst the retail population, certainly the average systematic trader makes more money on average than the average discretionary trader. It's just at the very far end of the distribution, at the very top,
1: you see more discretionary guys there. Mm. Yeah, cool, good stuff. Thanks for bringing that up, Rob. Now, just before we go to our final segment, which is maybe, I don't know, even know if you've been part of this, Rob, so we might catch you completely off guard when we get to that. But before we get to that, just running through the numbers, I mean, um, speaking of uh, CTAs and trend following having a, a, a better time now, uh, the beta 50 index is up more than 2% now for the month of November, and it's back in the black for the year 2020, up 36 pips. The Sockgen CTA index up 1.34% so far in November, but still down 2.2% for the year. Trend follows the Sockgen Trend Index up three quarters of a percent. And this is, by the way, as of Thursday, so it could have made money yesterday, and down three quarters of a percent for the year. The Short Term Traders Index up 13 bips for the month and uh, up just shy of 2% for the year. The risk premier index, SOCGEN risk premium index, um, down a little bit in November. Still down a lot in in 2020, down 15%. Obviously, MSCI World up very strong this month, up more than 10%, up 7% for the for the year. And the uh, World Government Bond Index is up 27 bips so far in um, in uh, this month. So, Rob, what Moritz and I started doing just to add some extra value, hopefully, uh, towards the end of each episode, is to talk a little bit about what kind of content we enjoyed in the last week or so. Could be a podcast, could be uh, an interview, could be a really good white paper, I guess. So um, to give you a few seconds to think about that, I'm going to start with you, Moritz. What caught your attention? What did you enjoy uh, this past week or so?
3: I think I I, I listened to two or three podcasts uh, while walking with a dog. One that I remember and that I really liked is uh, on the What Bitcoin Did podcast uh, with Raul Powell uh, called The Money Revolution. I recommend people listen to that. Cool.
1: What about you, uh, Rob? Did you You, you uh, put me on the spot? (laughs) I have put you on the spot. Why not? Yeah, Yeah. that's fine. You can deal with it. You're a pro. I can. I can. Actually,
2: so it's something that we, we didn't get around to talking about today which was the potential inclusion of Tesla in the S&P 500. So there was a nice little, very, quite short blog post on uh, the Robot Wealth website, which is uh, quite a nice website that I follow. Uh, and it, it talks a bit about the the idea of index inclusion arbitrage. So, you know, Tesla's coming into the index. This is a known event. Well, can you really make money out of a known event like this? And it does kind of have a little bit of um, a link to some research papers on this particular subject um, and uh, as to whether you can make money generally out, out of these things. So it's quite a nice little piece and a, a good introduction to that that particular systematic source of returns that, that we probably don't touch on, but but is out there.
1: Cool. Great. My pick this week will be a an interview actually on Real Vision between... William White, who used to be a central banker for decades and even a banker to the central bankers, I guess, talking to Jim Grant. That was a fascinating conversation and uh, really touches on what he believes, and and, and and I think he has good information, why central banks are probably getting this completely wrong, but of course only time will tell. So anyway, that was for me a very insightful uh, conversation and on that note we're going to wrap up this week's conversation episode we hope that you enjoyed it and uh, also as mentioned earlier please um, comment please share please rate and review it really does inform us about what you like it uh, also helps other people find our conversations and of course make sure you do send us your questions Info at toptradersonplot.com is where you um, you can do that and uh, feel free to follow all of us on Twitter, if you like. From Rob, Moritz and me, thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, be well
0: and stay healthy.